Good to see you. If we haven't met yet, my name is Chris. Get to be uh, one of your pastors here. I want to say welcome to those both in the room, those who may be uh, joining us uh, online via live stream as well. It's hard to believe. I woke up, looked at my calendar uh, this morning. We are in the month of March, y'all. Now, and yesterday felt like it, didn't it? It was like 65, sunny, pretty awesome. I think this afternoon is supposed to be uh, pretty spring-like as well. So, man, uh, it's, it's hard to believe we are in the month of March, which, you know what else happens in the month of March? Somebody this morning said March Madness, bunch of sinners, right? <laughs> Easter! Easter. Yeah, all the Dukies and Tar Heels, you know, are like, oh, March Madness. Easter is going on in March. So it's not, it's not in April this year, like it usually seems like it is. It's in the month of March, March 31st. And so, man, you guys know, that's like the Super Bowl of Sundays for Christianity across the world. And so just want to let you know what that weekend is going to look like. We're going to kick it off on Friday night. So we started this tradition last year with a contemplative Good Friday service. It was awesome. This room was packed out. It's a very kind of sober, somber time as we remember and reflect on the death of Jesus, him going to the cross, uh, going to the grave. It was awesome. And then we show up on Sunday morning ready to party, right? Ready to celebrate. And so just want to encourage you to plan your weekend accordingly. Come hang out with us Friday night. Again, that's a different service than you're going to get on Sunday morning. If you come Friday night thinking you're going to get Easter, you're going to be really disappointed. So come Friday night contemplative Easter celebration. The second part of that is, again, there are so many people in our culture that are far from the Lord, that are not in any kind of church context or community, and many of them, all the stats show, will come if they are invited by somebody that they know and trust. And so that's your task. That's my task, is, man, who, who can you be thinking of? Colleagues, co-workers, college classmates, neighbors, people that live in your apartment complex that you could invite to be your guest on that Easter day, right? And I promise you, man, I'm going to give them the gospel. We're going to give them the gospel. They're going to leave here with hope in Jesus Christ. And so, man, let's pack this place out, not so we can pack, pat ourselves on the back, but so that Jesus would be magnified in our city and in our neighborhood. So I want you to know that's coming up end of this month. Be, be thinking, be praying about it. We are going to be, as JJ mentioned, continuing in our series on the, in the Sermon on the Mount this morning, the most famous sermon probably ever preached by Jesus himself. The last couple of weeks have been pretty intense, right? As Jesus has been just peeling back the layers on topics like anger, murder, lust, adultery, marriage, divorce. It's been fun, right? Maybe not, maybe not fun, but uh, I think good for us to collectively as a faith family to tackle hard things uh, together. This week we're going to look at oaths, retaliation or revenge, and love for enemies. So maybe not quite as controversial uh, this morning the last couple of weeks, but I, I would argue just as relevant uh, to our lives today as folks living in Asheville, North Carolina, 2024, all right? So if you have a Bible, go ahead and type to, turn to Matthew chapter 5. As Anna just read it, we're going to start in verse 33. Uh, let's pray, and then we'll get after it. God, we, we come to you, and uh, gosh, life so often just feels completely out of control. Uh, it can feel overwhelming at times. It can feel suffocating. Uh, and yet you are a good God who desires for us to walk in freedom and peace. Your word says that over and over again. Uh, be not afraid. And so God, I pray that you would speak to us this morning. We know, I know that the people gathered in this room and watching online, they don't need to hear a word from a man. They don't need my opinions or anything like that. God, they need 
a living word from the living God of the universe. And so God, would you, would you give us that through your word? Holy Spirit, we invite you to, uh, to this place, to this space, that you would be present and active, that you would take these ancient words that Jesus taught on a mountaintop so many years ago and you would apply them in a, such a, a real way to our lives that we would leave this room uh, different than we came in, that we would leave here looking more like your son, Jesus. In whose name that we ask and we pray all these things. Amen. All right, now we're right in the middle of a section. You may remember where Jesus is giving these six statements, right? And they all start like this. You have heard it said, but I say to you. So six times he goes, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And what he's doing, he's going back to the Old Testament law. Many times he's going back to the the Ten Commandments. And he's saying, hey, listen, you've heard the Pharisees, these religious leaders of the day, teach and interpret these Old Testament laws in this way and teach applications this way. But I'm telling you that they've done so wrongly. And so I want to give you the, the actual interpretation of these Old Testament laws, and I want to give you the correct application uh, to these laws as well. Now, here, here's the thing you've got to understand about the Pharisees. They had taken biblical truth and reduced it to the minimum level of outward obedience. So their thought process is like, hey, what's the least we can do and not be in sin? Like, what, what's, the minimum, like what's the minimum I can do and not be under the wrath and judgment of God? And Jesus is looking at that. He's going, man, like, that's the, wrong, that's the wrong attitude. And he's bringing it back to the heart level, which, listen, y'all, is always much deeper and way harder. And he, really what he's doing is he's teaching us how to live as citizens in the new kingdom, which is never easy. Oftentimes, especially as modern people, it's disorienting. Almost always it's countercultural, which means a lot of our friends and family and neighbors will look at us and be like, y'all crazy, Right? The way, the way that you're living your life, the way that you're orienting your life around the gospel, the way that you spend your time, the way that you love other people, the way that you forgive other people, wild. Like, we just don't get you guys. So it is all of those things, but most of all, I think living in his kingdom is deeply good. It's good for our souls. It's good for our relationships within the body of Christ. It's good for our relationships uh, just in the context of knowing one another. And ultimately, it brings glory, I would argue, to our king, which is really what it's all about. So let's start with oaths. Now, we don't use the word oaths a lot in our, uh, in fact, I can barely even say oaths uh, in, in our culture. Like, like what, is, what is an oath? And so here, maybe an easier way to understand it is Jesus is tackling truth. The issue of truth or honesty. So let's look at that again. He says this starting in verse 33. Again, you have heard it said uh, to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no, and anything more than that, comes from evil. All right, so what's this, what's this all about? Is Jesus saying that as his followers, as Christians, we should never make a promise? We should never sign a contract? We should never make an oath or a vow? Clear, clearly not, right? Last week, he just got talking about uh, the high priority he places on the marriage oath or the marriage vow. We see oaths in the Bible in a positive light oftentimes. If you need references, Deuteronomy 10.20, Philippians 1.8, so clearly, Jesus is not saying, as some have taught, hey, Christians ought not to stand in court and place their hand on the Bible and say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. That, so if that's, if that's not what he's after, if he's not saying we can't swear on things or we can't promise things or enter into contracts, what, what is Jesus actually after here? 
if that's not what he's saying here. Now, I think this is helpful for you to know. The Pharisees had uh, crafted what I would call an elaborate system of oaths to avoid telling the truth. They, 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 had, they had created this elaborate system with all of these loopholes so that they could avoid telling the truth, so they could be deceptive. So I don't, I don't think Jesus is arguing that all promises or oaths or vows are, are wrong here. He's hammering the abuse of oaths. He's hammering the abuse of oaths and telling lies disguise the truth. Now, here's how it would go. Basically, the way that the Pharisees taught this law is that if you swore on anything other than God, it was not binding. That was, that was kind of their thought. So they would oftentimes swear on their heads. That would be like us maybe swearing on our lives. Somebody doesn't believe us. Like, man, I swear. I swear on my mom's life. I swear on my life. That was kind of, they would swear on their heads. That was like saying their lives. They would swear on the temple. They would swear on Jerusalem. It even got, listen to this. It even got so weird that if you swore on Jerusalem, it was not binding. But if you swore facing Jerusalem, it was binding. I mean, just a wild, elaborate system of loopholes to manipulate the truth, be deceitful, and still not cross that boundary of sin in their minds. It was madness. And Jesus is saying to them, and he's saying to us today, listen, y'all, lying and deceit is nothing short of an affront against a holy God. Lying and deceit is nothing short of a full frontal assault on a perfect and holy God. Now, let, let me just ask you a question. Do you think the issue of telling the truth is still a problem for us today in our culture? Do you think that's a problem? Have you listened to a politician recently, right? I looked up some, some stats just to drive this home this week. These are all self-reported, so whatever these numbers are, probably double them is accurate, right? Um, the average person lies one to four times a day, so that's as many as 1,460 lies per year per person, if they're being honest about how many times they lie. Get this, 60% of people lie uh, at least once in a 10-minute conversation. 60% of people lie at least once in a 10-minute conversation. Men lie six times a day on average, while women lie three times a day on average. Good job, ladies, right? You're only halfway to hell. As, as men, we're already in the flames, all right? All right? 40% of people lie on their resumes. 90% of people lie on their online dating profiles. I'm six foot three, right? I'm a size two. I bet you are, all right? 80% of women admit to lying to their partner about their spending habits. That's, that's, the unholy that's the unholy trinity of Target, Hobby Lobby, and TJ Maxx, right? It's caused the end of many a marriages. I will not make eye contact with my wife right now. Uh, po number seven, politicians lie on average once every five minutes during a debate. Keep that in mind as we head towards November. They're all liars, y'all. Don't believe anything they say. 56% of people admit to lying to their boss or supervisor. 42% of people have lied to their significant other about something significant. 39% of people have lied to their friends at least once. And 28% of people have lied to a healthcare provider. Yes, I've been dieting and exercising. I don't care what the scale says. It's wrong. It's broken. Now, here's the most common lies. Most common lies we tell. Number one, I'm fine. 60% of people tell that lie. And isn't that a common one? How you doing, bro? Oh, I'm fine. Meanwhile, your marriage is falling apart. Your kids hate your guts, right? Oh, I'm fine. Next uh, most common lie we tell, I'll be there in five minutes. 40% <laughs> of people tell that lie. 
uh, I'm on my way. <laughs> I forgot I'm leaving the house now is what you should say. Uh, I didn't see your message or your call. Like, bro, it says red. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you didn't forget. Uh, I have read and agreed to the terms and conditions. <laughs> right? I did that yesterday on an app. I was starting to scroll. I was like, nope, nope. Don't got time for that. Yes, I agree. I've read it all. Uh, came across a glorious article online this week called Sneaky Babies Learn to Lie Before They Learn to Talk. And in it, they reference a 2000 study out of the University of Portsmouth that found that infants as young as six months practice deception. Y'all listen, we come out of the womb with black little lying hearts that need Jesus. All right, this is just, this is who we are. This is not just an issue that plagued the people of Jesus' day and time. It plagues our day and time and our culture just as much as it did, did his. Now listen, we may not have a problem swearing oaths on the temple or Jerusalem or any of that goofy stuff, but we do this junk all the time in a variety of ways, don't we? Like running late to, to a meeting and our friend calls us and, hey, I'm on my way. I'll be there in five minutes. Bro, you, you just left your house. You got 20 minutes if there's no traffic. Right? That's, that, that's a lie. Or what about our own version of manipulation? Like, hey, man, I know you're at the, in the workplace. I know you're going through a lot. I know you're super busy. I know you just had a baby last week. But if you could give me that report, by the end of the day, I could spend some time with my dying grandma this week. That would be super helpful. Well, what are we doing there? We're using the art of manipulation. We're framing the question in such a way that there's only one guilt-free response. Some verbal manipulation. How about this one in the church world? I'll pray for you, bro. How many times has someone come to you and they've shared something, some struggle, some wound, and you make a promise, you make an oath to them that you'll take them before the throne in prayer, and how many times do we forget? We just get so busy. I got so convicted about this a few years ago. I just started like, if, if you ask me for prayer, it doesn't matter if we're in the bathroom, we're in the hall, I'm like, okay, let's pray right now because I'm a loser and I probably will forget. If you email me, I will, right there, I'm gonna spend a few minutes, I'm gonna pray for you and I'll write you back. If you text me, I'm gonna pray right there. I don't want to lie to you. If I tell you that I'm going to pray for you, I want to follow through and be a man of my word. I want to pray for you. But so often, we just casually throw out these things. Oh, I'll be praying for you, bro. And we just throw out these white lies constantly as if they have no consequences in the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. No, this matters in my kingdom. Now, why do we lie? Probably a lot of reasons why we lie. I think there are two, at least two primary reasons that we lie. One is pride and the other is protection. One is pride and, and the other is protection, right? And so we want people to think that we're better than we really are. That's pride. And we don't want people to know how bad we really are. That's, that's protection, right? And Jesus is saying, no, 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 listen. As citizens of the new kingdom, you keep your word. You practiced honesty. You're trustworthy. You're dependable. Your word is your bond. Let your yes be yes and let your no be no. I've said this before. I think, uh, man, if we really learn to practice this kingdom ethic rightly as the people of Jesus, every time a new corporation or a company moved into Asheville, their first question ought to be, where are all the Christians at? Like, we need to build out our managerial team. We need to build out a staff. Like, they believe some wacky things, but we need, where are the Christians at? Because they're honest, they're dependable, and they're trustworthy. Their word is their bond. They're hard workers. They show up when they say that they're gonna show up. Listen to the words of Jesus in Luke uh, chapter six. He says this, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. Now watch this. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. 
Jesus is saying, ultimately, this is, this is not an issue of you just telling the truth or massaging the truth. Ultimately, y'all, this is an issue of the heart. And what comes out of your mouth, whether you like to admit this or not, is a window into your soul. What comes out of your mouth is a window into your soul. In fact, in John 14, Jesus says this of himself, I am the way, you finish it, the truth and the life. Jesus goes, I am truth. Like, like you want to know what truth looks like? You want to know what truth sounds like? Look to me, I am truth personified. And if he is the truth, and I believe with all of my heart that he is, as the people of Jesus, we also must become people of truth. And that's the first take home this morning on the screen for you. Citizens of the new kingdom, number one, are truth tellers. Are truth tellers. So friend, listen, just by way of encouragement before we move on, if you've been lying to others, if you've been lying to yourself, if you feel like you're trapped, and by the way, that's what lying does, right? We, we kind of build ourselves a little cage, right? Because we tell one lie and that leads to another lie to cover up the first lie. And then we've got to build out some other lies to cover out those lies. And before we know it, we're in a prison of our own lies, feeling caged and trapped. If that's where you are and you're wondering, how do I get out? Listen to the words of Jesus. Here's how you get out. Tell the truth. Tell the truth. Listen, the best thing some of you guys could do this morning is to be honest with yourself. Hey, that girl that I'm pursuing on my high school campus or my college campus, I'm not doing that because I want to pursue a godly marriage with her. I'm, I'm doing that because I want to use her. I want, to, I want to sleep with her. So you just need to be honest about your heart's motives and intentions. The reason I spend so much time around the new intern in the office is not because she needs help and I'm such a helpful guy. It's because I'm attracted to her. The reason I, I like going on my business trips alone, I don't like my spouse to ever go, is because I do things on those trips that I don't want anybody else to know about. And some of you just need to be honest about really simple things. Like, hey, listen, I drink too much. I eat too much. I have anger issues. Listen, you, you can't deal with any of those things until you're honest with yourself, honest with God, and then finally honest with other people. Because for the Pharisees, it was all about just the outward appearance of righteousness. And they could, they could have hearts that were far away from the Lord and hearts that were deceitful. But as long as the outward veneer was right, they felt like they were right with the Lord. And Jesus is just smashing that with a hammer and saying, it is not about your outward performance. It's about where your heart is. Where's your heart? And so as the Pharisees believed in that kind of moral outward righteousness, Jesus is saying, no, no. Not in my kingdom. In my kingdom, my people will be people of the truth. Now, Jesus moves then from truth-telling to the topic of retaliation or revenge. So let's pick it up there in verse 38. He says, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now listen, in our culture, we love a good revenge story, don't we? Like think about most of our classic movies. I was kind of went through an inventory of my favorite movies um, this week. So I'll just always start with The Gladiator, one of the classics, you know, and introduce my kid to the, kids to that over the last a few months. And I'm just gonna share with you like one of the most epic sort of revenge speeches 
in cinematic history, right? You, you may remember this. My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the north, general of the Felix Legions, loyal servant to the true emperor, Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the one to come. Ah, I'm ready to pull out a sword and go now, right? Let's go! Taken, Liam Nelson, Neeson, right? Remember that? I, I won't even read you that, the climax kind of revenge speech in that movie. I don't want you ripping your shirt off and running through a wall in church. Um, I did that in sermon prep, right? It was not a pretty sight. And I just realized this week as I went through this, like almost all of my favorite movies are revenge stories. And I'm not sure what that says about the blackness of my soul. But I think that we all get this and understand this to one degree or another, don't we? I mean, how many of you have had someone, whether it was recent, some of you are still kind of licking your wounds from one of these uh, interactions. Some of you think back to like middle school years or whatever it is, but you've had an interaction where somebody insults you or they demean you in some kind of mean way and you go home for days, weeks, months, maybe even years and, and you just replay that conversation in your mind again and again and again, right? On repeat, as you drive in your car, as you take a shower, as you wash the dishes, except for this time, you unleash the perfect dagger that brings them to their knees all right <laughs> I appreciate the honesty right <laughs> all right like you just like man you think of the perfect response you're like man th this would put them in therapy for years to the glory of Jesus and it feels so good in those little imaginary conversations doesn't it don't look at me all innocent I know I know you guys little sinners you do it too listen we live in a culture of revenge and retaliation we see this saturated throughout our culture in a number of different ways I think about especially now the political division in our nation right I've never seen it like this before um, as we and that's only by the way going to ramp up as we get closer and closer to election season I just encourage you as followers of Jesus as followers of the third way men do not get sucked into that don't allow yourself to become tribal and we hate them and they hate us and let's kill them before they kill us. And let me just encourage you, step, step outside of that, step above that. We see the phenomena in our culture, especially online, of, of cancel culture, right? We're like, hey, if you disagree with me, I'm gonna cancel you. I'm gonna murder your business. I'm gonna murder your, your livelihood because you disagree with me about something. So this idea of retaliation, revenge, road rage, I-26, 5 p.m., any number of issues, right? We just see this embedded within the fabric of our culture. Now, one thing you need to know about this whole concept of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, this was based on an Old Testament law known as lex talionis, the law of revenge, right? Now, two things you need to understand about lex talionis before we move on. The first one is that it was designed for a judicial system, not individuals, Right? So, so just like the court system in Buncombe County, they could arrest uh, a criminal and imprison him for 20 years. But if I pick up that same criminal and lock him in my basement and punish him for 20 years, right, that's kidnapping and false imprisonment. I'm now going to be in the prison with him, right? That's what Lex Talionis was supposed to be, a guide for the judicial system. But what happened in Jesus' day is individuals had taken the law into their own hands. So it was no longer being used in the court systems. They were taking it into their own hands to enact uh, revenge and retaliation. And so, uh, you know, it would, it, I'll, I'll explain in a minute kind of how that would flesh out. The second thing you need to understand about Lex Talionis, what is it? ultimately it was a law that was created to limit abuse. 
See, in those days, the way it was playing out is you would kill my horse, I would come to your house at night and slaughter your whole family. Right? You killed my horse, I'm taking your family out. You knock one of my eyes out in a street fight, I'm coming with a bunch of my friends with a butter knife and I'm slicing both of your eyeballs out, now you're blind. And so Lex Talionis was put in place as a, as a way to mitigate this sort of abuse of justice. And that's, if we're being honest, most of us, that's what we want. We don't want justice. We want retribution when someone hurts us. We want to one-up the wound. We want to one-up the offense. You cut me, I'm going to cut you deeper. You make me bleed, I'm making you bleed even more. And Jesus is saying, hey, hey, listen. Listen, in my kingdom, there's a better way forward. And then what he says next, I think, and this is just kind of a side, but I think it's important to address, I think is one of the most misinterpreted sentences in the whole Bible. When Jesus says, don't resist the one who is evil, he goes on to give three examples of what he means by that. We'll get to that in a minute. But many have taken that one verse out of context, I believe, to teach that Christians, followers of Jesus, should become victims of abuse, to become punching bags or doormats, accept abuse. So we talked about that in the context of marriage last week or that we can't defend ourselves or our families against evil. In fact, this is the verse that has given birth to, I think, a very misguided position in the church world known as pacifism. Martin Luther, in fact, one of the church fathers said this uh, about the idea of uh, pacifism or not resisting evil. He says this, for the Christian, this was ridiculous, like the crazy saint who let lice nibble at him and refused to kill any of them on account of this text, maintaining that he had to suffer and could not resist evil. Only a crazy mother would not defend her child from a dog or a wolf. Christ did not abrogate this duty, but rather confirmed it. And we see that in the life and practice of Jesus himself, right? Jesus himself ferociously defends those he loves, whether it's driving out evil men from the temple after he fashioned a whip, right, stepping in and protecting the life of the woman who is caught in adultery from a mob of would-be executioners, right? This is not a call to become victims of abuse or to refuse to stand up to evil and injustice in the world. In fact, I would argue that as the people of Jesus, we have the highest responsibility to fiercely resist evil and to stand up to injustice above and beyond anybody else in the world. So I, th- I just want to say that's kind of a caveat. I, I think we've, we've got to be careful not to take uh, verses like this further than Jesus intended for us to take them. He gives us three examples that I think help us understand what he's after here. The first one he says is, when somebody slaps you on the cheek, turn your other cheek. Now, a lot of us in the Western culture, we think, well, that means Jesus wants us to be victims of abuse, right? Somebody's just beating the junk out of us or our wife, kid, whatever, then we should just like watch it and pray for them or something like that. But you've got to understand in the Jewish culture, when someone was slapped on the cheek, that was not physical assault. It was the highest form of insult in that culture, okay? So it would be like the a modern equivalent might be a racial slur today for us. Or if somebody were to spit in your face, Whatever the highest form of insult is in our culture today, he's saying that. If someone insults you, even to the highest degree, who cares? Don't retaliate. Allow them to insult you again. I've told the story before of uh, when I was a sophomore in college, gave my life to Jesus, began to follow him. And I was working at the uh, pizza shop on campus. And one of the girls that I was working with at the pizza shop was a girlfriend of one of my sweet mates. So she had heard that I had become a Christian and so she kind of comes up with this really snide look on her face and she's like, hey, I heard you became a Christian. I said, yeah, yeah, I have. And she gets this really like sinister look on her face and she leans in and she goes, didn't they used to feed you guys to lions? 
she wasn't the most attractive person walking on the face of the planet. And so I had a lot of thoughts in my mind that could have brought her to her knees, right? But I, I you know, I, I didn't. I, I, I said, yeah, yeah, I guess, they did. I guess they did feed us to lions. And so I didn't retaliate. And that seemed to bring the temperature in the room down. And uh, she was at least nice to me after that. Jesus is saying, hey, listen, as, as citizens in the new kingdom, it doesn't matter if you're insulted. This whole idea in our culture of fight for your rights and demand this, and not, it's like, okay, that's fine, maybe culturally. That's, that's not my kingdom, Jesus says. If they insult you, allow them to insult you again. We have a higher view when we're walking through this life. Similarly, in that culture, if, if you owed somebody else, if you were in debt, they could come and legally collect your tunic. It's like your, your shirt, be the equivalent of your shirt. But it was against Old Testament law for them to take your cloak. That'd be like our jacket because everybody had a lot of tunics, um, but, but typically people only had one cloak. They were expensive. Also in those days, when people would travel, they didn't have cars, they'd travel by foot. Oftentimes they'd have to sleep on the journey to another city, something like, like that. Their cloak was used as bedding. Right? as they were traveling. It was used as protection from the elements. And so you could take somebody's tunic if they owed you money, but you could not take their cloak. It was considered inhumane to take their cloak. But Jesus goes even further, right? And he says, hey, listen, if someone takes your shirt, give them your jacket too. Give them, give them the very thing that protects you against the elements. In other words, shock them with your refusal to seek revenge. Blow their minds with generosity as a response to their malice and injustice. And then finally, he gives a third example, and he says, hey, if someone forces you to go, go, to, uh, go a mile, why don't you go two of them? Well, what's, what's that about? Well, in those days, there was, a, there was a Roman law that said that a Roman soldier could force a Jew to carry his gear for a thousand paces, or about a, about a mile. And you got to understand, for the Jews, they were living in an occupied um, nation, and Rome had abused them in, in unimaginable ways. And so for you, as a Jew, to have to carry the gear of a Roman soldier, your very abuser was considered an act of the highest humiliation. And so Jesus goes, hey, listen, when they make you walk a mile, why don't you shock them a little bit and go two of them? Now you just, just imagine the shock on a Roman centurion's face, right? They, they force you to carry their gear for a mile and it's time to put it down and you're like, I got you, bro, let's keep going. Let's walk another mile together. Now they would have had no framework to even process what was going on, right? And what an opportunity for us as followers of Jesus to point to the Savior who walked the extra mile so that now we can walk the extra mile for other people. So maybe to modernize that, think about your jerk boss, man, ask you to work overtime, ask you to work on a Friday night. Instead of getting defensive, you're like, hey man, do you need, you need me to come in and work Saturday with you too? And just like, what? wait, what? <laughs> what? What's going on here? Jesus is saying, hey, listen, y'all, my kingdom is not like this world. My value system is not the value system of this culture. I have a better way. I have a more beautiful path forward. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this section right here, particularly this section about not retaliating, about not seeking revenge, my first thought is this is a beautiful way for you to live. I love watching you guys do that. But you don't understand the pain that I've been through. You don't understand the, the deepness of my wounds, the ways that I've been betrayed 
Because if you did, you wouldn't ask me not to retaliate or not to seek revenge. And so I love seeing this played out in your life, but you ask me to apply this to my life and it gets much more complicated. And yet, we see Paul saying in Romans chapter 12 this, beloved, never avenge yourselves. Do you know what that word never means in the Greek? Never. (laughs) Not like sometimes don't do it, like most of the time don't do it. He says, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, and now Paul quotes the Old Testament, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with what? With good. Do you know who's really terrible at enacting justice? You. Me. Do you know who's really awesome at enacting justice? God. <laughs> He's awesome at it. And so, friend, what, why, don't, why don't you just entrust these wounds to him? I'm going to say this, and some of you need to hear this. Every evil, every injustice, every injustice, every wound, every awful thing someone has said to you will get paid for in one of two places, hell or the cross. Hell or the cross. So why don't you just leave it in his capable hand, friend? God's got you. God's got you. And that leads right into our second take home. Citizens in the new kingdom, number two, leave retaliation in the Lord's hands. We leave retaliation in the Lord's hands. And then Jesus moves on to the third and final statement. He says, starting in verse 43, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons and daughters of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Now, the first part of that teaching that the Pharisees were giving, you shall love your neighbor, comes from Scripture. That actually comes right out of Leviticus 19.18. But what about the second part of what they were teaching? Hate your enemy. Where's that in the Bible? Anybody know? It's not there. It's not in the Bible. See, the Pharisees had tacked on. They had had added the second portion to love your enemies or or to to love your neighbor and they've added that you should hate your enemies so the whole the whole thought process for them was hey listen if someone loves you love them back if someone hates you hate them back if someone uh, cares for you care for them back if someone stabs you in the back you stab them back even harder right so you're going to get from me whatever I get from you that was the philosophy of the day and Jesus is deconstructing this idea and he's reframing it this way hey listen if you're in my kingdom you are to love differently because you belong to a different father he's rooting it in the very character of God he's saying you're to love differently because you come from a, you have a different father than the world around you and the culture around you in church how has the father loved us even, even while we were his enemies, even while we were chasing idols and chasing other lovers, loving our sin more than Jesus, he pursued us. Has he not loved us extravagantly? Even in the face of our rebellion and our sin. 
Now, this may bring up in your mind a, a very, I think, reasonable, logical question. Well, who, who is our enemy? Right? Like, we don't really use that term a whole lot anymore. Like, hey, Chris, I'm not in the mafia or a street gang like you are. So what, what is a, what is a minute, what, what's, what's an enemy now? So let me just give you kind of a modern take on what I think maybe is enemy. An enemy is anyone who doesn't like you, anyone who is wishing you harm or working towards your harm. All right, so somebody that doesn't like you, wishing you harm, working towards your harm. I have enemies. I'm guessing if you're like over nine years old in the room, you have enemies. People who don't like you, who wish you harm, who are working towards your harm, those who have hostility towards you, those for whom you feel hostility towards. Like who, who's that person that when you hear their name, fireworks go off in your brain? I, I bet you some of you, like you see that person right now, right? They just go off in your brain. Or, or maybe who's that person that you see in the grocery store and you go into fight or flight mode? Like you're hiding behind the Cheerios section, right? As soon as you, like, I, I, don't, I don't want to talk to them. I don't want to see them. I don't want to deal with them. I would just say, if you think you don't have people like that in your life, you're probably a little oblivious. You're probably a little naive. We all have people that fall into this category in our lives. And Jesus comes along and he goes, hey, listen, that person that person where fireworks go off in your brain as soon as you hear their name or you hide behind the Cheerios if you see them in Publix, that person, don't crush them. Instead, what I want you to do is love them. I want you to pursue them. In fact, here's what I want you to do. I want you to learn to pray for them. Now, I've just, this is just kind of pro tip for somebody that's been walking with Jesus for 23 years now. I've discovered that the best way for me to unroot bitterness in my heart towards someone is to pray that God would bless them. To pray for their good. Do you know how hard it is to hate somebody that you're praying for God's blessing in their life? It's really hard. I've tried, right? It's really hard to hate somebody that you're consistently just praying, God, would you bless him? Just bless his marriage today? Would you help him love his kids well? Would you help his business thrive? It's really hard to hate somebody in your heart when you're praying those kind of prayers. And then Jesus just drives it home and he says, hey, listen, man, what, what good is it if you just love those who love you? Like you love your friends, you love your family. Like, okay, how are you different than anybody else in the world? Even mafia kingpins love their family, their kids, their friends, right? That's transactional love. That's you love me, I love you in return. You do good for me, I do good in return. But God is not calling us to transactional love. He's calling us to unconditional love. And there's a huge difference. We're to love others the way he has loved us. How has he loved us? Unconditionally. Look at the words of Paul in Romans 5. He says this, For if, while we were God's enemies, what were we before we were in Christ, according to Paul? His enemies. We don't like hearing that, but there it is in black and white. For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Listen, if God loved us when we were his enemies, if he came after us while we were hostile in heart and mind and actions towards him, how then can we not love and pray for our enemies? Like you've probably heard the phrase, hurt people hurt people. I think that's true. But I say to you today, loved people should love people. Even our enemies even when it's hard. And that leads right to our third and final truth this morning on the screens for you. Citizens of the new kingdom, love and pray for our enemies. 
I love this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He's a Christian pastor, theologian in Nazi Germany who uh, fiercely resisted the Nazi regime, paid, for, paid with his life for that resistance. This is what uh, Bonhoeffer writes. Your life as a Christian should make non-believers question their disbelief in God. Not your theology, not how well you can espouse Bible verses or demand that people read the Bible or submit to uh, Christian ethics. Now your life, like the way that you live, should make those who are outside the family of Jesus question their disbelief in God. As people who belong to the kingdom of Jesus, we are to be truth tellers. We are to be those who leave justice to God. And we are, the, we are to be the ones who love and pray for the very ones who hate us and persecute us. And in these ways, we show that we belong to another kingdom. And then Jesus closes this part of his teaching with these words in verse 48. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now I get to that last verse and if you're anything like me, I read that and I go, I can't. Man, like I've tried a lot to willpower my way, to have enough self-discipline in my life to live out these countercultural ethics. And if I'm being honest, like, man, I don't always do a good job of being completely truthful and not manipulating or massaging my words in a way to shift and change outcomes. I'm not always good at not wanting to seek retribution when I'm deeply wounded. Like, I'm not, that's not natural to me. It's not easy for me. I'm not great at loving my enemies well. I'm not always great at praying for those who hate me, who persecute me. And so I don't know about you, but I, I read that last sentence there, and, and for me, I go, man, if the standard is perfection, I'm in trouble, you know, like, I'm in deep trouble. And yet, I would say, that's precisely the point, friend. That is precisely the point. You can't, but Jesus can, and he already did. <laughs> In fact, oftentimes I think we read the words of Jesus and we can feel condemned, but then we watch the life of Jesus and we can see that all of it was for the purpose of bringing us into a reconciled relationship with him to save us. And what I found is that over the years, that with Jesus, as we walk with Jesus, as we learn to be empowered by Holy Spirit, to listen to that still small voice of the Spirit in our souls, for those of us who know Jesus, that we can, over time, it's not a light switch, but over time, we can begin to live out these principles in beautiful ways. Not us, Him in us. Not your willpower, His power through the Holy Spirit in you. And we, begin, we can begin to influence uh, those who we know, those who are closest to us, those that we're married to, our roommates, our kids, our parents, our coworkers, our classmates, those who live in our neighborhood. We begin to live out this new kingdom ethic in beautiful ways. It's good for our soul. It's good for those around us. Ultimately, it brings glory to King Jesus, which is what we're after as his followers. Let's pray, and then we're going to worship our great King. God, we come to you and. We are so grateful that you, you've called us into another kingdom, another way of life, another lens through which we see and interact with people in the world around us. 
And God, we confess this is not easy for us. Like this runs against our nature. It goes against everything our culture teaches us. It goes against our feelings and oftentimes even our natural intuition. And yet we trust, God, that you're good and that your word is good, that your ways are good. And so we just ask, Father, that you would help us in these things. By the power of your spirit, we'd begin to live these things out, flesh these things out in our lives. That we would learn to be truth tellers, to to leave revenge in your capable hands, to love and pray for our enemies, those who would wish us harm and, and work towards our harm, that we don't have to take up that sword and fight that battle, that we can lay that down and walk in freedom, knowing that it's all completely and totally in your hands. We love you, God. We pray all of this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Church, would you stand as we worship?